Well, stand with me as we rise to read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles. I do hope you have one to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 987. What we want to look at today is the first half of 1 Thessalonians 5, which we trust, Lord willing, will be the second to last sermon in this wonderful book as Lord willing, next Sunday, Dr. Dunson will be with us to preach through the final half of the chapter. But let me read these 11 verses for us this morning, and then I pray for our time, and then we'll begin together. So here now, as God speaks to you through His perfect Word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer once again. Father, we are grateful for this day in which you speak to us. We do pray that you would speak to us clearly and that we might respond with meekness and repentance. That I might preach, as you say I must, with clarity and courage. Lord, that even through the preaching of your word, that Christ would dawn upon our hearts. As a son of righteousness will soon dawn upon the world. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen. We may be seated. One of the greatest reformers of the 16th century was a French pastor theologian named John Calvin. And in his early academic career, he had to flee Paris due to persecution that was coming towards Protestant believers. And he intended to get to this city, this kind of rural country city of Strasbourg, where he was wanting to have a silent retreat where he could study and where he could write and plan out all of his theological program that he wanted to put into print. But as God's providence would have it, he was forced to make a detour along the way in the city of Switzerland known as Geneva. And it was not long after that he arrived in Geneva that he was named the pastor of St. Pierre's Cathedral. And there he ministered for the next three years, fighting for reform, fighting for holiness and faithfulness within the life of the Genevan community. Often he found himself at confrontation moments with the city magistrates that eventually boiled over to a point where three years in to his pastoral ministry, John Calvin was sacked from his service as certainly is if you know his ongoing influence, one of the more stunning realities of church history that a great reformer 
was sacked from his church. Well, three years later, some time later actually, he was in Strasbourg and the city magistrate said, hey, John, we want you to come back to Geneva. And he didn't want to go back. For almost 11 months, he hesitated on whether or not he was going to go back to Geneva, this people that ran him out of town and banished him from the city. But eventually, he felt that the Lord genuinely had called him to return to Geneva, and so he came back. And so when he rose that first Lord's Day back in Geneva to the pulpit stairs there at St. Pierre's, people were wondering, surely, well, what's he going to say? What text will he choose to preach on this morning? Is it going to be something of a declamation that perhaps maybe shows he's a little bitter about how we treated him previously? Or maybe it's going to be an exhortation. Hey, this time we're going to walk worthy of the Lord in his calling. Or maybe it was going to be a declaration that, yes, finally, you realize true reform is is necessary in this church and community if we're to glorify the Lord. And he walked up those pulpit steps and he opened up his Bible to the page where he left off three years prior. And he said, my text this morning is where we left off when I last saw you. And I tell you that because what we're doing today, on what is in every way a celebratory day in Redeemer's church history, 25 years God has sustained this congregation, and we're simply turning to where we left off last week. And for many months now, people in our church have planned what happened yesterday, putting this great fellowship time together. Thus, I and the elders have had several months to think about what we might do with this service uniquely, and it was several months ago that we decided just to continue on in the ordinary Lord's Day service ministry here at the church. Because perhaps in certain ways it might encourage you, and I trust it will, because if the Lord is going to continue to sustain Redeemer, for another two and a half decades, should he tarry in sending his son, such power, such sustenance will only come to the ordinary ministry of the word in your midst, one week after the next, one page to the next, one chapter to the next, as you receive his truth, as you receive his grace, as he builds you up, encourages you, and points you to the Lord's return, which is what our text points us to today. On this unique day in our church's history, it seems as though what God would have us fix our gaze on today is nothing more than the coming day of days, which is the return of his son, Jesus Christ. An old pastor named Thomas Adams wrote in his exposition of Second Peter, really lamenting, he said, quote, the furthest end of all our thoughts is the thought of all our ends. And students, what he means by that is, we rarely think about the end of all things. So consumed are we with the pressing realities of life here in this moment. And what we're going to see along the way today is that, yes, you might not have thought about the Lord's return in any deeper meditative way recently, but certainly it was this bright, shining part of the Apostles' program for training a church and growing a church and establishing a church. Perhaps recently you've struggled for comfort in the loss of a loved one, grieving over some suffering in your life. This text is going to point you to how the hope of Jesus Christ coming again is some of the greatest comfort you can ever receive. And I wonder if you've even thought about recently how the Lord's return should stir up and, and motivate true earnest pursuits of holiness. Well, this text is going to help you understand that too. So the truth about the Lord's return is 
the theme from our 11 verses this morning, and I want to walk through them under two sections. Number one, what you don't need to know about his return. And then number two, what you do need to know about his return. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we looked at verse 13 through 18 of chapter 4. And it was there that the Apostle Paul turned to what seems to be a pressing pastoral matter there at the church that was young in Thessalonica. It appears that someone, perhaps several people, beloved in the church, had died in the Lord, and people were wondering, what happens after death? What comfort can we find when a loved one in Christ dies? And kids, I gave you two reasons why you can have comfort in the face of death. Do you remember what those were? Number one, Christ's resurrection. That just as he was raised, so will he raise his people at the last day. And number two was Christ's return. That he's coming once again, and when he rises, when he descends from heaven, all those who are dead in Christ will meet him in the sky, and all those who are alive in Christ will join with him as well, and they will return to the earth. And so what he now does, and continuing on this theme of the Lord's return, he's really moving from instruction about the Lord's day to exhortation regarding the Lord's return. And it begins with what you don't need to know about his return. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. That phrase there, the times and the seasons, other translations would say something of like, when all these things will happen. You might know that even Jesus in his own ministry, his disciples would ask questions about the times and the seasons. Lord, when will all these things happen? Ever since, of course, generations of Christians throughout the ages wondering, when precisely is Jesus going to come back? In May of 2011, Emily and I were on vacation, which was the first vacation since our first child was born. We happened to be walking around the city where we were on May 21st of that year. And we quickly realized, at least I realized, based on some banter and joking conversations that seemed to be happening around us or over the counter at a place we might go, uh, that some type of joke was existing that I wasn't in on. Because I was hearing things like, well, I guess he was wrong because we're still here today. Or aren't you thankful that we're all around this morning eating breakfast together? And so I eventually found out later on that afternoon that a a well-known televangelist and radio preacher, at least well-known in that part of the country, had said, as he had discerned the times and the seasons, May 21st, 2011, Jesus was going to return. Altogether different than what Paul tells the Thessalonians, right? Look at verse 2. You yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, kids, you can surely understand why Paul's using this language, in part because Jesus uses that language when he talks about his return in the Gospels. But kids, you know that if a burglar is going to come to your house, he's not going to tell you when he's going to burgle you, right? It's meant to be a surprise. It's meant to be unexpected. It's meant to be something you're not anticipating. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly what's going to happen with my return. Paul is affirming that even in his teaching here, in his apostolic ministry. You will not know when he is coming back. What you don't need to know is precisely when he's coming back. Yes, it's good news, but you need to wait for it. But this news is not good for everyone. You'll see verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
In the first century Roman world where the Thessalonians lived and Paul was ministering, there was this kind of propaganda that came from the Roman Empire known as the Pax Romana, which was essentially, it was the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire alone that could bring peace upon a people, peace into a land. And what Paul is saying is there at his time in the first century, far too many people were trusting in rulers and authorities and empires and governments to bring peace and security Harkens back, doesn't it, even to Old Testament prophets that God would speak through them, warning them and decrying how many, so, how many leaders were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I wonder if any of you might even be in here today and perhaps you haven't realized it before, that you've somehow imbibed and submitted to worldly propaganda of where peace and security truly comes thinking that rulers and authorities and governments and agencies can actually bring peace and security on earth. You see what Paul is saying in verse 3 is he's adding another metaphor, isn't he? That the coming of Jesus Christ isn't just like a thief in the night. You'll have no warning. The coming of Jesus Christ is like a woman thrown into the sudden agony of labor pains. And surely all of You who have the privilege, ladies, of having born children before know exactly what Paul is talking about. The sudden agony that arrives when the child is on the way. You know, with our six children, we had that worked out over the last ten years or so. The the sudden agony that comes unexpectedly when the baby's on the way. And of course, this is the bad news of the text. That there are so many people in the world that say, hey, we have peace, we have security, and then... Sudden agony arrives. They weren't ready. Destruction has fallen upon them. What you don't need to know about the Lord's return is precisely when it's going to happen. But now you'll notice in verse 4 through 11, we're told what we do need to know about the Lord's return. Several weeks ago, after an evening service, a few of us were talking late into the evening, and somehow the conversation veered at some point to the chaos that can ensue in a home when you get a sudden summons from a friend or family member saying, hey, I'm coming over. And then the chaos that ensues in a home when someone says, hey, I'm coming over. Later on that evening, or perhaps it was the next day, someone texted this video of a matron. It was a satirical video, this joke of a matron running around with a vacuum in her home, barking orders, demanding that the house be perfect, lest when someone comes over, it looks like anyone has sat on a cushion of the couch before. And what Paul is telling us here, isn't he, is that the coming of the Lord's not like that. When the cry of the trumpet sounds from heaven, when the shout of the summons announces over the earth, there's no time to get ready then. So the time is to be ready now. And what he does in verse 4 through 10 especially is he teaches this exhortation through a series of contrasts with these conjunctions. At least my ESV translation has four of them. You'll see in verse 4, but you are not. And then you'll see in verse 6, but let us keep awake. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day. And then even verse 9, but to obtain salvation. One thing I want you to see from these contrasts is how the day of the Lord reminds us of our identity. Look at verse 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not 
of the night or of the darkness. Which doesn't it make total sense that God has called us into the light. He's called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That we're to live as children of light because Jesus Christ himself is what? The light of the world. Even the Old Testament prophets, they would prophesy of a time coming in the future when God's light would dawn upon the earth. One famous text would be Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness all the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light. Even 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, The darkness is passing, and the light is coming. See, he's reminding us of how the day of the Lord shows our identity. We're children of the day, not of the night. We're children of the light, not of the darkness. And as New Testament authors often do, they move from who we are to how we must live, what we must be. So it's why the next few verses move us from the truth about our identity as it calls us to sobriety. Look at verse 6 and 7. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. He's piling up, if you have eyes to see, metaphor upon metaphor to try to understand the reality of spirituality when Christ returns. He's saying, of course, that there are some who are awake, those who belong to Jesus Christ. There are some who are asleep, those who remain in unbelief and unrepentance. He says, we're not the children of the night, therefore, we're not to be asleep, rather to live sober lives. And of course, you know that in our culture today, when we think about sobriety, we normally think about it in the context of drugs and alcohol, which is true even as Paul continues, doesn't he, in verse 7, kind of linking this spiritual slumber, this moral indifference to debauchery and drunkenness. Some of you, perhaps tragically and acutely, know the degree to which being drunk blunts your senses, makes it really hard to be alert to be ready. And what he's saying is that Christians are always alert and ready. They've cast off sin that used to put them into slumber, that dulled their senses so they wouldn't be ready for Jesus when he returns. And maybe it's true then that part of the reason why so many churches today, so many even Christians today, struggle to think so eagerly about the Lord's return, perhaps because, perhaps because, We've let respectable sins and tiny transgressions go unanswered for, unmortified, and slowly but surely, it's a lulling our soul to sleep, that we might not be sober for his return. Sobriety is so important, you'll notice verse 8, pounds at home again, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. On Friday of this week, A few of you were there with us, too. I was at this conference at a ministry that our church supports, and even some of its leaders are often here, a ministry that resources Farsi-speaking Christians around the world with sound doctrine and rich truths to grow in, in Jesus Christ. And It was just before lunch that one of the speakers invited up a South Korean missionary to Iran been serving there for several decades. 
And as this brother began to recount his work among the lost and the needy, the dying and the hurting, God's children there in Iran, he began to talk about a time, wasn't it about 30 years ago, when uh, the persecution and that epicenter of suffering for Christians, it was rising to this level where he had just decided in his own heart that he was going to stay in Iran because he was just going to be killed for his ministry for Christ. And then he recounted how in God's providence, the Lord kept him there for another 30 years. But he spoke about a friend who was martyred for his faith. And then unexpectedly, this, this man, he grabbed a guitar off the stage and he began to sing a song that that martyr had written. It's a martyr song that gratefully they put the words up on the screen that we might know what he was singing in Farsi. It was a song of hope in Jesus Christ. Hope for what's coming. Hope for what belongs to an eternal inheritance that can sustain you as the song talked about. The harshest wounds and the loss so tragically but gloriously of a martyr for Jesus Christ. And all of us that were there, it was silent, it was still, it was most sobering, this song of hope. It's to hope, you'll notice, that Paul turns as verse 8 continues, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Uh, Maybe you know how Paul loves in his letters to speak about the armor of God that God's people need to wear. It actually all goes back to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, where Yahweh is depicted there as this divine warrior putting on armor to defend his cause and, and his, his people. But kids, what you want to see about here is Paul again is talking about armor, warfare in the Christian life, that you've been baptized into the triune God's name. If you've been baptized, therefore you've been baptized into the greatest battle that the world will ever know, has ever known, But I trust, children, you know, this is a battle that's not waged against flesh and blood. It's waged against the cosmic powers in the heavenly places, the spiritual forces of darkness that are arrayed against God's people. And it's a spiritual battle that, of course, what demands spiritual weapons. You see, as Paul often does, he emphasizes this holy trinity of Christian grace, faith, and love, and hope. He's already mentioned those in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Use these weapons in your sober readiness for the suddenness of Jesus' return. Some of you are, are fighting and contending for the faith. But our faith, love, and hope, your most ordinary weapons in this war. Well, you see, verse 9 moves us now from reminding us of our identity and calling us to sobriety to how the day of the Lord points us to our final destiny. He says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word there for destined is the same one that's actually used in Acts chapter 12, verse 4, which talks about King Herod throwing the apostle Peter into prison, which was an imprisonment he didn't deserve. And gloriously, this text is telling us how the king of heaven takes people like you and me, sinners that deserve a prison of death, and appoints and chooses and destines them for salvation instead of condemnation. 
This is the hope that's to surround our heads spiritually, the hope of salvation. This is the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, if you have received it. For you see, it all depends on him. Look at verse 10 at the beginning. Salvation comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Who died for us. Isn't it so much like those gospel passages where Jesus will speak to his people? Even as we take in communion, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is broken for you. This is my life, that you might live. But now it's a corporate connection, isn't it? Do you rejoice in saying this is our Savior, who died for us? Not just me, not just you, but, but us. So this is the truth that you need to know about the Lord's return. You don't need to know precisely when he's coming back. But you do need to know that he is coming back suddenly, unexpectedly. That's so how we live lives of watchfulness in readiness, longing to see the salvation come to its final completion. The first home that Emily and I owned had a door connecting the back hallway and the garage. And I guess the previous owners had a small little dog, or I suppose even a cat, because there was one of those tiny little doggy doors cut into the door. But it was sealed in a way you couldn't push through. And there was a period of time when our oldest son was probably only about 18 months old, when I would leave the church at which I was serving at the time. And, you know, I'd text Emily and say, hey, I'm on the way home. And we lived pretty close to the church. And so she would tell Hudson, hey, Daddy's coming home. So, you know, I pull into the driveway, I click the garage door opener, up goes the garage door, and then right on that glass of the doggy door was a tiny little face. <laughs> Just waiting and watching because someone had said, he's coming. And isn't it true that the Christian life is to be that kind of readiness and watchfulness? He's coming. I wonder if you're looking, if you're watching, And to help you, of course, watch and look and be ready, I want you to see three final things as we begin to close from this passage. I want you to see how the day of the Lord divides. Number one, it divides. Perhaps if you read through the text later on this afternoon, you'll notice the degree to which the passage is putting together these opposites. Of course, it's simple enough, isn't it? Some of you belong to the night. Others of you belong to the day. Some of you are asleep. Some of you are awake. Some of you are in darkness. Some of you are in light. Some of you are sober. Some of you are drunk. Some of you are destined for wrath. And some of you are destined for salvation. There's no middle ground, is there? It's this great divide that belongs to Christianity, for there is only one true way to know God. There is only one way to respond to His Son, And what the day of the Lord in its final return will establish is a forever fixing of people into one of those two places, the light or the darkness, wrath or salvation. And when he returns, you'll never move from where he places you. For those in Jesus Christ, what a glorious thing that is, situated forever in God's presence. But for those outside of Jesus Christ, it's genuinely the worst news you could ever hear. There's no second chance. I wish you had told me you were coming 
But you need to know the kindness of the Lord. That's what happens every time preaching is in your hearing. The Lord is knocking. I'm coming. Company is coming. That in eternity you can't cross the divide. But today you can. You can come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and you'll find yourself forever fixed, not in wrath, but in His grace and salvation. I want you to see how number two, the day of the Lord, is doctrine that encourages. It doesn't just divide, it's doctrine that encourages. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. It's almost the identical application he made last week, as we saw in verse 18 of of chapter 4. That there are times, aren't there, when Christians grieve. There are times when God's people need comfort. Therefore, there are times when they need a hug. They need to squeeze their hand to remind you that you're with them. They need a kind word of your persistent prayer for them. But don't mistake how the Apostle Paul says what they also need is doctrine, theology, that gives you comfort unto all eternity. What these grieving Thessalonians needed were reminders, declarations of doctrine that Christ is coming again. And what good news that is for hurting, sorrowful people. I do pray that all of your doctrine is so encouraging and all your encouragement is so doctrinal as Paul's was. So the day of the Lord is going to divide. The day of the Lord is doctrine that encourages. Finally, notice how the day of the Lord points us to our chief delight. To our chief delight. Look at verse 10 and how it ends. Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That sounds a lot like, if you glance back to chapter 4, verse 17, that we're going to be caught up in the clouds to meet with the Lord and we will always be with the Lord. The chief delight of Christ's second return is not that all sadness will end forever, which it will. The chief delight of the Lord is that when Christ returns, that not all sin will be defeated forever, which it will. The chief delight of the Lord when Christ returns is also not that death has officially been vanquished, which it will. The chief delight of Christ's return is you get to be with the Savior forever because he is all the comfort that you need he is all the hope that you need and i pray that you might find yourself by the spirit even this morning growing in faith hope and love and this truth about the lord's return let's pray together Father, we ask that you would indeed encourage our hearts this morning. We confess once again that we have not longed for your son's return. Father, grow our affection for him, our love for him, that we might always be watching, that we might always be looking, so that we would be found ready, clothed in his righteousness, my faith alone. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.